Welcome back to Dollars and Dragons. Today I have with me Brian Cortijo. Hi. If you'd like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about uh, who are you? Oh, so I'm Brian Cortijo, as I'm sure your guests, are, your uh, audience already knows. Um, I am a uh, freelance tabletop game designer, in, primarily in the Dungeons and Dragons and related spaces. So I've worked f- uh, on uh, D&D products. I've worked on Pathfinder products. Um, uh, I worked on product for uh, Blue Rose. Um, and uh, I'm generally tinkering in the in the fantasy role play space. How did you get your start in the industry? That's normally what most people struggle with. Um, and of course, you started a long time ago, but I think a lot of those stories are really uh, helpful to people just in general uh, to understand where people came from and you know how they actually did uh, come up. So um, I got my start in the early 2000s, um, back in the in the earlier days of third uh, edition Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, at that point, uh, a lot of the designers had their own uh, in their free time would maintain um, uh, forums on EasyBoard and later Yuku and when EasyBoard went the way of the dodo. Um, and I know I'm I'm aging myself here, but these are <laughs> these are the places. I know and, what EasyBoard um, is at least. I got gotcha. you. <laughs> yeah. uh, and um, I. Um, I was fairly active on a number of these, in particular for a couple of uh, folks who were designers over at Wizards of the Coast. Um, uh, one of those was Andy Collins, and another was Sean K. Reynolds. And um, uh, folks would come by and, you know, they'd discuss various creations that they'd have, a lot of homebrew stuff, and they'd ask a lot of rules questions. And I, um, being the helpful person that I am, would jump in a lot into a lot of those conversations and um, either help with rules interpretations or the calculation of the value of a magical item or that kind of stuff. Um, and I and I built uh, at least an online rapport with both the audiences and uh, the designers that I was visiting their boards to the point where they would um, let their audiences know that I could be trusted to answer those kinds of rules questions. Um, I became very friendly uh, personally with Sean Reynolds and... Um, uh, uh, he recommended that, you know, if this was something that I was interested in, that I should start to submit to Dragon Magazine. And, and I did. And I got rejected a couple times, just like everybody else did back when Dragon Magazine was a thing. Um, but I also helped Sean with a couple of projects that he he was working on himself. So he he had uh, released something called uh, uh, The New Argonauts, which was a, 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 a take on Greek mythology um, in third edition. Um, and he did a charity project called uh, Hungry Little Monsters, which had a whole bunch of designers from all around the industry contribute, which was to uh, help with a hunger project that he was raising money for. Eventually, I did get accepted for a couple of Dragon Magazine articles. Um, Remember what they were? So the very first thing I did, they, back in the day, they had one page column called Class Acts. And so it was like advice for each of the character classes uh, in from the player's handbook. So I, I okay. think my, my very first thing was a, like a set of paladin spells. Gotcha. You would prepare. But the, the first kind of big project that I did for them was um, I, I helped on a very large uh, article about the Horde lands in the Forgotten Realms. Right. Um, uh, and, um, you know, I helped them both with the, the writing on that, but also with some lore revision and lining it up with kind of where the setting was at that point. Yeah. Um, I did this not knowing that they knew that within 10 or 12 articles, they'd be retiring the print magazines and turning them back over to wizards. Oh, okay. um, but with, it was on the strength of that, that I was asked to, um, kind of come in and do in very quick succession, a bunch of articles, in those last few uh, issues. Yeah. So Wes Schneider had, had pinged me and, and they, they were like 3,000, 4,000 word articles. 
Right. One was on like some uh, uh, undead monsters that they were a couple that they were revising, and then they wanted me to design just based on an on an image that came in, which was actually pretty cool to, to do it kind of the reverse of the process that you'd normally do as a designer. Yeah, that um, is super cool. I I appreciated those those jobs because they really allowed me to build a relationship with the folks I was working with, and really get when you're when when you when you come in late late on a project when you're asked to do something last minute as a freelancer you get more of a glimpse into the the inner workings of the publishing side of things than most freelancers get a lot of freelancers right. do things in their own bubble unless they were a full-timer in-house somewhere else before they became a freelancer you know back in the mid-2000s there were a lot of people who used to work at wizards of the coast who were either forming their own companies or doing freelance for other companies. And so right. um, I was fortunate enough to kind of be in the know at a time when a lot of people weren't. Right. And I think that that allowed me to get, um, I don't want to say my foot in the door because I, I credit, I really credit um, Sean and Wes Schneider for, for getting my foot in the door, but allowed me to stay in the space longer because I think a lot of freelancers make the mistake of thinking, well, I'm a great writer. That's all I need. Right. And um, knowing the business and knowing what's going to happen when you turn that manuscript over um, is so very important to kind of staying in the business and getting that next job. Because if, 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 you, if you're a great writer, but you can't follow the style guide or you overwrite by 10%, you didn't really carefully read the assignment. So what you wrote was great, but you're not going to get that next job. And so after they shuttered the magazines, um, uh, Paizo pivoted to the Adventure Path and... Um, I was asked to do some back matter. So each adventure path book has a, a long adventure and then some back matter. So it might be monsters or other other material that's related to the, the main adventure. And Paizo asked me to do some stuff on those. And then um, uh, as they were getting to the end of the third adventure path, the designer that had been assigned to Pathfinder number 18 got ill. And so they said, okay, well, who do we know that can turn over work fast and oh, can be trusted yeah. to do it? Nice. And so they rang me up. Nice. And, That's great uh, to have that reputation. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I wish I, I wish I could still do it at forty two. What I yeah. could do <laughs> in my in my mid mid to late twenties because I, I can't do that anymore. Yeah, um, definitely. But back then I could. They rang me up and asked me to um, because the adventure was already outlined and they already had uh, map orders in. It was just a matter of kind of generating the flesh of the adventure. Okay. Um, you know, they knew so, what the, where the story was going to go. Yeah. So mechanical text, box text, and then odds and ends. It was it was much more the narrative text and okay. making sure that okay, describing the locations and yeah. the characters. Um, and uh, they were going to handle the mechanical stuff uh, as okay. related to stat blocks and stuff, but like designing traps and and the um how to how to how the players interact with it. That that was my job. Nice. Um, okay. So I think I I think I had. It was about. It was just under three weeks to do twenty thousand words, um, including reading everything, digesting it, and getting it back to them, so that they could stay on target. Because the Pathfinder Adventure Paths were a subscription service, so yeah. if they didn't meet their print deadline, they couldn't get it out to everybody. Hold, hold on, hold on. You said twenty three thousand. Twenty thousand words. Twenty thousand. Three in, weeks. In just under three weeks, so it was like eighteen days. Holy um, shit. Uh, <laughs> With a day job, I I was working full time at this point. So this wasn't like, um, it wasn't like, oh, I get up at eight and I work from from nine to nine and I go back to bed. It's it's not what it was. It was, I get up, I go to work from my nine to five, I come home and then I do however many hours of design I could do. You're a Um, fucking monster. That's amazing. 
Um, wow. I, I was a monster back then. <laughs> not, not anymore. I, yeah. I can't do that anymore. Um, it was, it was, it was hard. And, um, and, and you know, uh, when James Jacobs first emailed me to ask me to do it, um, Wes Schneider was copied on the email because he was also working in, in that area of the company at that time. And Wes, Wes's only response to the email was an image of, um, now remember this was 2007, 2008. So this was like pre-meme like memes yeah. weren't yet a thing, but here yeah. I am, a picture of Admiral Akbar saying it's a trap. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the work had to get done. Somebody had to do it. They were going to pay me. It was it was a big opportunity. Um, I think we nailed it. Um, everybody seems happy with that adventure, and uh, things you know kind of went from there. Uh, I've I've been my entire I don't want to say career because. I, my freelancing is an important part of my life, but it isn't my career. My career is my day job. Right. Um, but it, I've spent my entire freelancing life as a part-timer. I, I say that I'm a full-time part-timer. Yeah. And so, you know, it's uh, I have the luxury of being able to say I don't need to take on this project to pay the bills, um, which I know a lot of freelancers, unfortunately, don't for whatever, you know, whatever their personal situations are. Um uh, but it also means that when I do take on a project, I take it really seriously. And, and you know, it, I, I am as committed as I can be to make sure that what I turn over is quality. Um, but that one was rough. <laughs> that one that one was a, was a tough project. Um, after that, I did more work for Paizo um, through a lot of the first edition. Uh, I also did work for uh, once um, once Wizards revitalized the magazines. Uh, in-house for fourth edition they pub they started publishing them digitally and so they brought me in to do some articles um uh there were some one-offs and there were also a couple that were based uh in a particular area of the forgotten realms that uh i'm considered the expert on um and so there is. oh really uh, okay yeah so um uh there was an there was a in january 2012 there was something like uh five articles that uh were all based in that area and i I wrote three of them and I consulted on another one. And uh, one of my dreams is to have the the time and the money to um, kind of really put together a really nice Dungeon Master's Guild product center, like a, like one of the old older fashioned regional source books. Yeah. Um, for Cormier. Yeah, I did. I did a bunch of work uh, during fourth edition on the on the magazine side, not a, not on any of the books. And um, and then when fifth edition rolled around, um, uh, uh, Wizards tapped Green Ronin to do the Sword Coast Adventures Guide. So those first couple of products that they put out for fifth edition, um, they actually didn't do in house. Uh, out of the Abyss, um, the Adventure Out of the Abyss, and the, and the Sword Coast Adventures Guide were done by Green Ronin. Prior to that, the two Tyranny of Dragons adventures were done by Cobalt Press. It was an interesting business decision that they made. I don't know why they did it, but and uh, Green Ronin brought me in to do Sword Coast to work on Sword Coast Adventures Guide, and I, I was uh, fortunate enough to write a big chunk of that book. And uh, most recently, I got to work on uh, Dragonlance uh, Shadow of the Dragon Queen. Um, and I'm really happy with how that turned out. I really like the, the collaborative process of freelancing. So, how, how much are you allowed to talk about Dragonlance? Because I am I'm very curious about it. I have not spoiled myself because I am trying to become a player at some point for that campaign. <laughs> um, but what was it like to work on it? And uh, what was your history with Dragonlance? If you can talk about like your personal like, did you grow up reading the books and stuff? Or? I grew I grew up reading the Dragonlance novels, but actually not the Chronicles novels i was much more interested in the ancillary stories so uh the legend of humo was one of my favorite books for a really long time um kaz the minotaur gates of thorbarden um 
uh, I really like Dragonlance as a world. Um, one of the things that we tried, I, I can speak only generally about the adventure, right? And, and okay. I really, I really appreciated the, the collaborative process for this particular adventure. You know, it was, there was a lot more give and take and back and forth, both between the freelancers and the company and among the freelancers for this project, much more than I've ever seen really on anything I've worked, worked on for a major company. Um, um, the, there, there was a goal to not make it feel like the original Dragonlance adventures and to make the characters feel like they were really part of a growing conflict rather than spectators for, uh, a story for somebody else's story. Right. Which, uh, can really be a danger when you're dealing with uh, a world that kind of has a core narrative, right? Mm -hmm. Dragonlance. And I love Dragonlance. I'm, this isn't a criticism, but Dragonlance has had, has always had the core narrative of the heroes of the lands. Right. So the, the tricky part was how do you make a meaningful story um, without forcing characters to interact with those people um, or lean too hard into the same narrative beats? Right. And I, I, uh, you know, I, I think we did a good job with that. I think uh, Wes Schneider, who was the lead designer on that project, um, did an amazing job of putting the, the pieces that we gave to them together into a, into a book that, that really sings. Right. Um, you know, I, I am a lot of freelancers are really precious about what they turn over. OK. And so, yeah. you know, if something doesn't turn out exactly the way they handed it, handed it in, it's a real problem. And I am very much a fan of the iterative and collaborative nature of freelancing that, you know, you, you give some, I, I don't consider myself, I'm not an architect when I'm freelancing, right? I'm a brick maker. Right. My job is to make, make, make solid material the, because I'm not going to be the last hands on it. Right. So my job is to make solid material so that the people putting it together have something good to work with. And if they need to alter it a little bit that, you know, I'm okay with that. As long as what comes out is, is what the, the people that are going to live in that house need. And, um, it's one thing if you if you had a conversation with a with a with a lead designer and said, "Look, this is what I'm trying to do. This is what I'm expecting," and then what comes out is nothing at all like what you expected. Sometimes the best stuff comes out that comes out is stuff that you didn't even expect when you turned it over. Right? Somebody somebody takes something you gave them and and they make it even better. They make it sing. And, yeah. And um, you know, if I wanted if I wanted to just be looking at my own stuff on the printed page, I just I'd release my own stuff. Right? Yeah. I I wouldn't be freelancing. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Uh, so it's it's one of the things I, I like the most. And I was really, really pleased with with some of the things that they did, even with some of the changes that they made to stuff that I that I that I that I gave them. Yeah. Um, overall, very, very pleased. Yeah. The profession, I, I will tell you, I'm very deeply entrenched in the professional GMing scene and everyone loves the adventure. Um, the people who are running it and the people who are playing it. So I'm very excited to to crack it open. And I and I want to focus and chat briefly about like working together with teams in that freelancing environment and personal experience uh, with it has been just like right straight to project lead. Um, so um, now that I'm like running my own thing. Um, so for me, a lot of these concepts that I turned into people to do, I just gave them like a basic spec. Here are my ideas that I had about it, but it's yours. So take it and use it if you want to or change it. And often I was like very surprised and pleased and just like very um, excited about what they would turn back to me. Because if I hand it over to someone, then I expect like they're going to put their flavor on it. They're going to put their perspective on it. And it's been a real precious joy of mine. It's been very addictive for me to like collaborate with people in this environment. And I've, I personally, I love it. Um, I don't think I will ever have as much fun professionally as I have had 
for like working in a collaborative environment where we're like, creating something together and like I just turn stuff over to people and like have them turn something back into me that I never would have thought of instead of micromanaging them. Oh no, and, and that, that's one of the one of the great joys of of bringing bringing in or being one of the people in a in a diverse group that's going to bring you different ideas about about the same thing. Uh, but uh, it also depends on the kind of project you're working on. You know, if you're if you're doing a collection of NPCs or a collection of magic items, right? You have the freedom to say, okay, you do these five, you do those five, you do those five, and just let the wonderful variety come in. Yeah. Um, if you're writing a, a long form adventure, you know, you've got a, it's almost like being a head chef, right? Yeah. As yeah. a lead designer, right? Like the, the appetizers and the, and the soup and the main and the, and the, um, desserts, they have to sing together. You know, they can each be wonderful on their own, but if they have clashing flavors and you don't have a palate cleanser, they're not, they're not going to quite be there. Um, you know, so like when we were working on specifically Dragonlance, you know, I made sure to, to meet with the, the person who was doing section right before mine and the person who was doing the section right after mine. Okay. What do I need to know that you're, you know, about the specifics of where I'm starting? And then what do I, where do I need to make sure things are when, the adventurers get to your start. Like, like I, I will go wherever I need to go. I just want to make sure that I'm not leaving you at a place that you can't begin your part of the story. Yeah, um, brilliant. Yeah. Uh, I've never had the opportunity to do that before. <laughs> yeah. Um, working on really? adventure, okay. uh, to, to, to talk directly to the designers on, on either side. So, um, you know, I'm pretty sure Wes isn't listening, but in case he is, <laughs> thank you, Wes Schneider, for 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 letting us do that. This that was a that was a wonderful um, little bit of a uh, novelty. But yeah, I think I think you're right about the the beauty of of watching just watching other creatives give you cool stuff. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I love it. I um, that's how I run my own project. Like we have a Discord and we have like a first draft channel. So when somebody finishes something, then other people on the team read it. And then if something is relevant to something else, then I'm like, as the lead, I'm like, these three people together, I'm like, hey, you all need to read this thing because this is related to your thing. And having them sort of cooperate in that way makes everything a whole lot better. And then also it keeps them engaged and excited to be writing the thing. Because uh, I think my project timeline has like really stretched because it's like I don't have the budget to like pay everybody within 45 days <laughs> and then have it be done. Um, but yeah, uh, for for most projects, I find it's like... Uh, I find it to be the working with people, honestly, and collaborating is a very exciting thing to me. It's like, I think it's part of my personality to really enjoy it. Yeah, I, I'm I'm amazed and impressed. And also, uh, it's very pleasing to hear that um, that's that was your experience uh, with that book, because I know that's not the not the norm, no matter where you go for any of the uh, situations that you might be in. Um and a lot of the freelancers, myself included, who have like put turned in stuff, like sometimes like you definitely do not get to see anything else. And it's just like you write in your bubble and then someone else like takes it and then they modify it to fit everything else instead of you being a part of that collaborative process. Yeah, well, I will say that, you know, and having having been doing this for as long as I have and, you know, as much as I advocate for people to understand the role of freelancers, because I think people there's a lot of companies that mistake freelancers for um, on-call employees that just don't work in the office, right? And so 
a freelancer is an independent contractor. And as an independent contractor, you know, if I don't get to your email two hours after you send it, that's that's just too bad on you. That's not that's not how independent contractors work. Um, I have to budget my time. I may be working on another project at the same time. I may uh, I may have given myself a day off, you know, as an independent contractor, my only obligation is to turn over the work by the deadline. Mm-hmm. So unless you've built into your contract or your work agreements, you know, these this kinds of back and forth or these kinds of collaborations, some a lot of times they don't exist. Um, if if you're if you as a lead are fostering an environment where that's encouraged but not required. I, I think that's a positive. But yeah. if you're going to make it required, then you've really got to make sure that, you know, you're you're treating those like business meetings that people are getting compensated for, right? Like, yeah, you, you build that time in and say, look, you know, as part of this project, you're going to have, you know, these two milestone dates where you're going to be expected to turn in, you know, the first third and the, the first half or a full draft, right? You know, but also there's going to be five hours of meetings between this date and this date. And you're, we're going to be, that's going to be part of your compensation package. Um, yeah. I wish, I wish more companies would treat it that way. Uh, Cause yeah. I think you'd get a lot less pushback and I think, but I also think they get a lot better product out of it because you make people part of a team and not just um, cogs in a machine, right? Like the, and, and frankly, the more interaction you have with people who are writing part of your one unified narrative, the less work you're going to have to do on the back end, rewriting over everybody's stuff to make it all one voice, um, which is always an issue, especially in long form adventure writing, but in any kind of longer project or product, you know, you want to make sure you're not repeating stuff. You want to make very sure you're not conflicting something in chapter one that you've said with something that you've said in chapter three. So I, I, I think as an industry, we may be getting there once we get past our current kerfuffles. But I, I also think there needs to be a, a better conversation about not just freelancer compensation, but like what it means to be a freelancer in the space, what's expected of freelancers, what's expected of companies that are hiring freelancers. And uh, if not an onboarding process, uh, you know, training programs that are available to get people kind of interfaced with what's necessary, because you, you start as a, as, a, as a new freelancer, you may never have even heard what a style guide is, much less be able to read from one and, and apply it to your work. And, uh, yeah. um, you know, given that a lot of the, the ways to get into the industry aren't there anymore, you know, I, I haven't seen an open call in, in, in a long time. You know, Dragon Magazine and Dungeon Magazine are not there. A lot of companies don't have submission guidelines anymore posted on their websites. And so, you know, the on-ramps are, are disappearing. And um, especially now that there seems to be a... Um, for lack of a better term, a balkanization in the in the role playing space of people are kind of going their separate ways and and deciding that they that they may not be all depending on the same rule set anymore. Um, that's going to make it even harder for people to develop the skills that they need to be solid freelancers. I'm not talking about the writing skills. I'm talking about all the the business interface skills and self editing. You know, receiving and 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 responding to feedback. The things that you need to be a good, reliable repeat freelancer. I think it's going to be an issue unless kind of there's a conversation about how to improve that. Yeah, absolutely. You, I, I just have to say that I feel so great right now because you just described like the things that you described that you wish that the industry did or some of the things that I do or try to do. So I feel good about myself and I just want yeah. to point that. So, that, and that's, um, and I think part of that is uh, that freelancing or at least this industry kind of missed some of the things that other industries were doing because uh, perhaps, and I would love your opinion on this, this is 
my opinion of like looking at how a lot of people have described their experience to me and not personal experience, but like my secondhand view of it is that um, things were just done the way that they were done and never analyzed or improved for a while. I think that's that's quite accurate. Yeah, um, because the the only the only metric was for for years. The only metric was is and has been. Did the book get out the door on time? Was the book the best that it could be? Did somebody get burnt out <laughs> making it compensate everybody correctly? Um, did somebody quit over this project? Not all those other things, you know, human factors and and real you know business factors um it's always been okay did we get the book out the door on time and um sometimes that can't be the best measure i i i'm well aware that there you know there are business arrangements that depend on release dates right and so yeah. if you've promised your distributor that they're going to have the book in hand by this date then you need to make sure that the files are at the printer by this date and so you've got to make sure the files are ready to ship by this date you know obviously there are dates involved but i think a lot of times we lose the human element of of the process um but just as importantly Nobody does any of this stuff with an eye towards sustainability. Um, a lot of times, both in within companies and um, in the freelance ranks, there's a, a kind of callous acknowledgement that, well, if you can't handle it, there's somebody right behind you that can. You know, if this isn't enough money for you, this there's five people lined up behind you that are willing to take this amount of money. If the job is, yeah, you are you are utterly replaceable and. Leaving aside that a lot of people aren't replaceable, you know, um, they just aren't. And humans are humans and should be viewed as valued humans. That kind of thinking leads to a lack of institutional memory and acquired expertise eventually poisons the well, right? You want people, you want people who work in your, in your company to know what the cycles are and what it's like to build a product for your industry, not just how to run a, how to, how to be a good project manager, for example. Yeah. You want freelancers that know what it means to get feedback and respond to that feedback. You want people who are going to give you work that is as close to final as possible. Yeah. And um, right now, it seems like companies go one of two ways. Either they burn their freelancers out completely and just they hire the next crew and they and and whatever they turn in, they fix in house. Mm -hmm. or they only they only lean on the same set of freelancers over and over and over again until eventually those freelancers burn out because they're being asked to do too much and not getting paid enough to do this really full time yeah um and that's a repeating cycle i've seen it happen i want to say this is the third time i'm seeing it happen since 2005 or so it happens every six seven years um where uh people just can't you know, there's only so long you can burn the candle for both ends um, yeah. as a freelancer and freelancers, no matter how much anybody's paying, nobody gets paid enough. I, I've said it. I've said it publicly. I've said it. I've said it to every contact I have as as high up the chain that I can can say it. It does not matter how much you pay a freelancer. You're not paying them enough. You might be paying them more than everybody else. Right. Um, and, and if you are, I applaud. I applaud the people that are, but um, the amount of work that goes into producing one page of RPG content is is far more than the amount of compensation that that person gets. It's not just the number of words that you're typing, right? For every that you spend actually writing, there's anywhere from two to five hours that you've spent conceptualizing, researching, studying rules, internalizing, head writing. Um, whatever it is, it's not just, oh, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to punch out 2000 words today. Right? Yeah. It's not, that's not how it really works. And so the fact that we, A, still pay, pay people by the word and B, still pay them so little by the word 
as an industry at some point has to change. I don't think it's going to change in the next couple of years because I think there are other struggles that are going to frankly drown them out. They're louder. They're louder in the space. Yeah. Um, but I think there also needs to have, be a really, and I hate to say this because I know some people are going to start screaming about it. There needs to be a really serious conversation with the consumer base about how much they're willing to pay for products. Yeah. Because the profit margins for nearly every publisher are minuscule. Um, the amount, um, the number of, of copies that you need to sell um, in order to genuinely make a product profit are well beyond most companies, right? And so, you know, even with a Kickstarter, even with um, uh, drive-through RPG or any other, you know, kind of PDF site, it's it's hard. It's hard to it's hard to even break even. Forget about um, really paying people what they're worth. And so, un- until and unless people are willing to pay for the products that they buy, and and I hate to say I hate to put it that way, but it's true. Unless until yeah. people are willing to pay for a product, what the labor that went into creating that product is really worth, no one's going to get paid what they're worth. I I saw that. Um, I was actually just having the conversation with um, uh, someone in a publisher, and they're they're bumping their rates. Um, so there's uh, I wasn't talking to someone at Monty Cook, but uh, we were discussing this person and I about Monty Cook and how their uh, Cipher System rulebook now is seventy dollars as opposed to like a fifty dollar book, which I think is first of all probably more in line with inflation um but i would say maybe we need to even charge like 80 dollars in some cases I, I i would i would agree i mean leave aside core rule books for a minute right because i think core rule books are their are their own animal mm-hmm. um if i put out a 160 page adventure a mega adventure book right someone's going to expect me to charge probably 50 dollars for that book maybe 60 dollars for that book um because that's commensurate with like a Wizards of the Coast book of the same size, right? But the market doesn't realize that if I want to sell that book through Amazon, at most I'm recouping 45% of that $60, right? Because of distribution yeah. costs. And and I have to match that price with everybody else as well. So unless I'm selling it out of my garage, right? I've already lost more than $30 of that $60 just on the sale. And then I have to take printing costs out of that. And I have to take out art costs and layout costs and editing costs and freelance design costs and layout. And, you know, and at some point the publisher has to eat too, right? So unless the publisher is also the, the main writer, which I, I see a lot, people are barely breaking even on their books. I know. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm writing over half of the vineyard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 really difficult. And so, you know, unless you've got uh, an angel investor who's willing to say, I'll front you this much and, and you'll pay me back what you can when you can, but I don't expect to see all of it back. Or you've got a Kickstarter where you've got a runway to, to start off. How do you how do you promise people what, you, what even what you think they're worth? Yeah. How do you how do you approach those numbers? You know, unless you know for a fact that your book's going to sell 20,000 copies and you're going to make it up in volume. Yeah. You know. It, it it becomes a really difficult conversation, and I think as a as a as an industry, we haven't we haven't reckoned with that yet. Yeah, I was looking at I'm looking at what I'm doing for my next book, which is the How to GM Romance Guidebook, and we're putting we actually have the meeting tomorrow on Sunday with all of the initial writers before we contract, and if everybody agrees, we'll sign on. But um, and I'm looking at like my budget because and looking at the mistakes that I made with the vineyard, not necessarily like heinous mistakes, but like mistakes that cause me consternation, like and draw out this project and like timelines and everything that you're talking about with like how do i budget this how do i get everybody that i want on the team and still pay them uh, enough to justify their time and then pay them in a timely manner and like 
actually get something from them that I need for the final product when we're nine months out from the Kickstarter. And then from there, we're six to nine months out from like finishing the electronic version. And then print is like six months after that, right? How do I line all that up? And I'm looking at like, what's the smartest thing to do for me? And I'm like thinking to myself, I can do 5,000 art, I can do like 4,000 writing. And that's like my initial investment for these writers. And then we are saying, hey, we fund after I've spent $10,000 up front for this Kickstarter, we fund at $60,000 or whatever, and then you're going to get X amount of work additional or whatever that strategy might be. And I'm figuring that out right now. And it's rough. It's it's rough for everybody, you know, and that's why, you know, it's why I, I caution companies if they if and when they ask me and most of the time they don't ask me i caution companies who want to hire freelancers to treat those people well one first of all because freelancers talk to each other <laughs> yeah but also also because you know you're going to reach a point where you're going to have to ask the freelancer to do more than you initially asked them to do whether it's to turn something over um or a portion of something over a little bit faster so that you can get an art order in or hey so and so dropped out can i ask you to take on another 2000 words of writing um whatever it is you know th- there are realities to publishing that um you know, when you've been around long enough you just see them happen um and so if you don't treat your freelancers well either by promising them paying them on time whatever it is you're not going to get them to sign on for the extra stuff right you're going to get the freelancers who are who are going to say look i'm an independent contractor and you said i have until april 15th to turn this over i will email you on the morning of april 15th with my final manuscript and that's and that's all that that they have to say to you right that's you know as an independent contractor somebody might have that attitude now it's not the best attitude to have and you know you're not going to get rehired but um you know as an independent contractor they have every right to do that you know you're not their supervisor you're you've contracted their work um but it's rough it's really rough especially because um where's the money coming from it's not like there are grants out there for for ttrpg public that i'm aware of anyway that (laughs) i can say look i'm a fledgling tabletop role-playing game publisher and i'm applying for this fifty thousand dollar grant from the u.s government so that i can make sure to pay my freelancers um when they turn in their work not when i do the kickstarter not right you know on publication Right away, I want to pay my people right away. You no, know, believe me, if there, if I knew about if I knew that grant existed, I'd file for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of where I'm at. Like, I'm just like I'm looking at like what I've hired out for, and I'm like, okay, I owe this amount of money before we launch on Kickstarter because that's like my goal. I want almost everything, if everything that I've hired out for, to be paid before we launch on crowdfunding. Right. Because I and then from there, I still have other stuff that needs to be made to like tie up the loose ends and like figure out like the additional writing that needs to be done. But like, I don't want to hire for more work or have them work on it more when I haven't paid them for the first thing I asked them to do. Of course. You know the I mean? last thing you want is to Kickstarter pay out and then be like, okay, great. Now I have this, this 17% is already locked up on work that somebody already gave me that I first have to pay them for. Yeah. Um, you know, cause then that's not, you didn't really earn that money, right? You just, you just repaid it. There's a reason why the big companies are big, right? And um, the people that, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to phrase this in a way that is going to sound um, derogatory, but it's not. I'm here for it. Um, it. There is a, there's an old saying in, in, in role-playing games. and How do you make a small fortune publishing role-playing games? And the answer is you start with a large fortune. Yeah, it's um, true. It's not, there's not a lot of money in the space. And, and um, the people that run 
the companies that they run, look, the two biggest companies that the three biggest companies that I can think of that publish role playing games of any kind, their money didn't come from role playing games to start. And in, they were then they were acquired by even big two of them were acquired by even bigger companies. Right. So um, their money was it's not like they built from the ground up. Yeah, it's Instead, like that. It's that situation with like billionaires, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, how did they build this big empire? Well, they started with a small loan of a million dollars. Right. How, how did they pull themselves up by their own bootstraps? Well, they had yeah. the bootstrap factory, and so <laughs> um, yeah. it's 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 it. You know, it's it's and and this isn't to, it, that isn't meant as a dig on anybody. You know, the, the company and their corporate companies and their corporate structures and acquisition stuff are stuff that's way above my head. I'll never have nearly enough money to be part of any of those conversations. There's a certain security that comes with having the money to pay people a little extra and pay them on time. And so you can say, I don't have to worry about how I'm going to pay to put this book out in the market. And the book will either succeed or fail. You don't have to worry about its funding because its funding comes from the last book, not the book itself. Um, and that, I think, is is one of the things that a lot of current publishers don't realize is that the money has to come from somewhere. you got to be able to pay people. Yeah. And, you know, it's really difficult, especially with a Kickstarter, to say, OK, how do I have enough to put out there to show people what we're trying to produce? without creating such a, a financial vacuum that I can't afford to put the book out no matter how well the Kickstarter does. Um, and I cert- I don't want you or anybody else to be in that situation, but it, I, I, uh, it's the reason why I don't do Kickstarters. Yeah, is, yeah. Um, it's, it's a difficult dance to do, and especially if you've got other work commitments, because there is a certain freedom to be able to being able to put work equity in in lieu of paying somebody else to do something i've got a full-time nine to five i i don't control my own schedule in a way that someone else might be able to and so i would have to either put in extra hours when i should be spending time with my children or or my spouse or i've got to pay somebody to do the things that i can't do and then that's more money that you have to do to secure the original money yeah that's a that's a real question for me moving forward especially because like my plan is to scale down on pro gming after this year i scaled all the way up to where i'm at and this is 100 percent of what's funding like my project the vineyard and this kickstarter and getting us to the finish line here um is like the excess money that I make from it. But when I scale that down because I want to work full time in game design, well, then I have lost my angel investor because it's me. <laughs> so, right. yeah. And then I have to figure out, you know, all of that stuff that you're talking about. And it's genuinely scary, first of all. And then, uh, secondly, well, yeah, it's frightening. It's frightening yeah. because, I mean, I have to say this, you know, I don't think the pro GM market's going away anytime soon. Um, you know, it's, if anything, um, I mean, you may get more competitors in the market, but I think that's a need that will never fully be met. Um, There's always going to be a need for people who do what you do and do it as well as you do. Um, And then so I would have the same kind of consternation. You know, that's a difficult decision to make. You know, I know I can do this and I know I can make money doing it. It's not what I would prefer to be doing. I prefer to be putting my energy over here instead of over here. But this is where this is how the money comes in. Yeah. Um, You know, I have if I could retire tomorrow and not have to do my day job anymore. Um, and not have to worry about feeding my family and, and all that other stuff. I probably would. You know, yeah. I I do that job to pay the bills, to mm-hmm. secure my retirement, all the other stuff that people go to a day job for. Right. right. Would I rather be writing? Absolutely. I would rather be yeah. writing. As someone who grew up in a union house, right? My mom was a public school teacher, right? And so what was drilled into my head is a doctor, or you could be a lawyer, or you could have a job with a pension. I got a job with a pension. And I live in New York City and and I and I'm grateful that it, the pension is as good as it is. Yeah. Um 
I've, and that my, you know, my health benefits are as good as they are, but I worked really hard to have this job and have this level of security for my family. And, um, you know, short of lottery winnings, I don't know that I could ever give up that level of security. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, but I also, you know, I have like union protections that stronger than most people get. I can't imagine being in a space where I'm choosing between this side of the tabletop industry or that side of the tabletop industry because of all the things that are going on and how difficult it is to be sure that you're going to have enough money week to week, month to month yeah. to do that. So um, I applaud your courage because I don't have it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you. Um, but I think for me, it was uh, it was more of a personal decision and it, maybe I shall regret it down the road. But um, for me, I had spent 13 years in the Marine Corps. So when I got out, I was like, I'm going to choose to do exactly what I want to do and I'm going to make it fucking work no matter what it takes. So like I just went through all of 2022 as soon as I as soon as I like went from January to March and I went full time in March on uh, start playing games because I as soon as I made what I made there that I did at my day job I quit my day job like that day I was just like okay here's my two weeks like I'm out of here. And then I left and I scaled up as quickly as I could. Terrible for my mental health to go from five games to 10 to 12 games a week yeah, within a couple of weeks. But and I recommend no one do that. But, but it, um, it is great for your for your advanced emergency savings. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, I think for the most part, I because most of my money right now goes straight into the vineyard um, instead of like my savings. I think right now what I'm looking forward to after this Kickstarter is finally like when I earn extra money, I'm not going to immediately turn around and spend it. <laughs> and then I could like have like, you know, money in the bank and stuff. But um, so I'm really looking forward to that. Um, and we've got a we've got a great plan to go to Kickstarter. I've got Anya, the former director of games at Kickstarter, at, at Kickstarter, who now works at Backerkit as my campaign manager. Um, super blessed, hashtag blessed. And, um, you know, I'm, I have no complaints. If, if anybody's going to take a shot at it, I think we have the best shot in the business right now. So, oh, um, look, you've got it. You've got an amazing um, list of people working on that project. And so I, I think you'll, you'll have an, um, you'll have an excellent return on your, on your efforts. Um, but I totally understand the the concern you have at the front end of making sure, like, how do I how do I make sure that I take care of all these good people so that they remain a part of the project through the end, they see it through, and and you know, um, and nobody regrets associating their name with my project. You know, that I would I yeah. would be just as worried about that same stuff. Um, but Super I think, worried. yeah, um, you know, given given who's involved, including you, I don't I don't think other than making sure that you've got the money to pay the people that have already given you work, I don't think you've got much to worry about. Um, but yeah, I, any anyone would be would be concerned about the a level of uncertainty. You know, you know, yeah. if it doesn't fund, what do you do, right? That kind of stuff. Yeah, but I and, think and that's fund. yeah, that and that's part of also why like I need to pay everybody before we go to Kickstarter because like. <laughs> What if, like, I don't know, something happens? Like, what if something weird happens and everybody stops spending money in tabletop or something? You know, something freak, some freak accident. I don't know. What if there's a scandal with, like, one of the contributors, uh, you know, heaven forbid, and, like, you know, everybody's like, don't support this person or don't support this Kickstarter because they're on this. Pro-. You know what I mean? Like, what if that happens? But, you know. You never tell. You can't. You can't think. You can't think that way. It's. It's not. I, it's, it's not, not a, good for anybody's <laughs> mental health. To, to, you're right. Like, you're what, right. If, what if this happens? Yeah, um, you're right. You're right. You know, I've I've been around long enough to. Um, I've seen a lot of people in the industry um, have some pretty good successes. I've seen some people fumble the bag. Um, but I, I, I the, the 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 those kinds of terrible behaviors come from 
these inflated self-egos that are among the people that you've you've surrounded yourself with um good that's good to hear there are there are when people have a an outsized sense of their own importance to the industry that's when that stuff happens um that makes sense uh, uh, you know, I'm glad to not associate myself with any of those people. Not not the people that are on your on your project, but you right. know, people yeah, yeah. with that kind of attitude. And I hope never to. But I also appreciate the fact that I'm small enough that I can walk away from someone and not have to worry about it. Um, it's it's one of the reasons that I've dove in with two feet yeah. is that um, I don't have to ever concern myself with um, survival related to a project being beholden or, to someone. You know, nobody nobody controls my fate. The worst the worst that can happen is I never get to write for another tabletop project again. If that were to happen, and, and I'm not saying that's what I want, but yeah. if that were to happen, you know, my kids still eat. Yeah. You know, I still have health insurance for my for my family. I you know, I still got a place to live. I don't have to worry about those things. And um um that's not to and uh, that's not to criticize anyone else who's chosen a path where they are fully dependent on the games industry. I just wish we had a we had a better means of providing more security for folks yeah so that um because sometimes bad actors prey on that vulnerability either by either by being predatory abusers or by undercompensating and holding things over people's heads and both of those things suck and you know we've heard too many stories about people being in one or the other or both of those situations and so you know if we had a way to make sure that you know freelancers had health insurance without having to depend on a day job or they had a means to contribute to a retirement fund however modest to have something available to them um but i think we might be a full generation away from that you know short of some kind of universal basic income uh but i i want i wish there were more freedom for creatives to just be creative and be able to participate in projects like yours um and others without having to worry about you know how am i going to get food on the table how i'm going to make sure that if this falls through um i'm not working at walmart next week kind of stuff right um you know you don't want you don't want anybody to be in a position where one wrong move one bad project and they have to make the decision about whether to be in the industry anymore or not yeah and and the unfortunate truth is a lot of people are in that situation yeah or they get burnt out and like they're like okay well i just invested all of my blood sweat and tears into these three projects and like i can't take it anymore because the uh the stress of living paycheck to paycheck in a freelancer industry where you don't have and heaven forbid they have like a health problem right and they don't have insurance for that or something like that like it's a it's a lot to weigh over someone oh yeah it is absolutely and i've seen people who have you know who have been in situations where you know okay this project paid late and this one didn't pay at all and you know this project's paying next week great but that's still not enough to make sure that the rent gets paid and so what are they supposed to do you know do they take on that next project or do they turn down that project because they've got to go find a job in retail because that's what's hiring right now to just to make sure that they're making ends meet and you know again this part of this goes into you know some companies aren't ready to be hiring freelancers because they just don't have the money and part of it comes into you know we've got to get more money into the business more of that money can get passed along to freelancers and they can afford to stay in the space you know we've got lots of especially in the last three years there have been a ton of brilliant creatives who have come into the space and looked around and they're fighting over the same 20 dollars, right yeah and that's not what you want you know you don't as someone you know i am to put it modestly i'm probably 
at least halfway through my tape my my freelance journey right you know even if i even if i continue to do it for the same number of years that i've done it you know there's only so long i'm going to want to do this Mm -hmm. um i want this space to be better for the generations that come after me in terms of compensation in terms of diversity and equity um i want their i want things to be easier I want people to get paid better. I want people to feel like this is a space that they can stay in. And um, I think that requires more work on the part of bigger companies to make sure that people are paid better. I think part of it comes with people like me sharing what I know with, you know, people that want to hear it, you know, not shoving things down people's throats, but, you know, getting the benefit of my experience. Um, I think part of it is convincing the, the fan base to pay more. You know, it's not, uh, you know, I don't think, I don't think we're under monetized as a hobby. I think that we are um, dishonest with our consumer base about what the costs of creation are and the value. We're dishonest with ourselves about the value of what we create is. And I think if we can be be more honest with ourselves and with our fans, we can start to ease those numbers up. I don't think it's going to happen overnight. You know, I don't think you could take a $40 book and start charging $60 for it next week. But I also know that, you know, there are books that were $20 in the early 90s and were $20 in the early 2000s and were $20 in 2012 for the same length of book. And frankly, the freelancers that worked on those books, they got paid the same amount in, in the early 90s and the 2000s and the 2012 and, and in 2012. And so until you, until prices can go up, I don't see how you can expect wages for lack of a better term to go up. Yeah, that's a that's something that we're looking at with our Kickstarter is we're and I was talking to uh, my campaign manager about this and trying to strategize like what can we get away with charging? And what can, you know, I say get away with, but like, what are people going to pay for this Kickstarter and, you know, still fund us? Because like, if we charge too much, people just won't fund us. And then we're stuck in that place where, um, where we've barely met goal, or we are just under goal, or we've just made goal. And then we're not charging enough to actually pay people a good amount. We don't sell many copies because we're charging $90 for a hardback cover and everyone's going to scoff at that or whatever it might be. But in my opinion, like, why am I not charging $50 for the PDF when it's the same material? It's just not physical. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If you want to sell a book, I should be able to save $50, $55, $60 just like a video game because you're going to use this thing a lot if you actually love it and use it, right? You're going to use right. this thing a lot. It's going to cost you $1 Every time you pull this thing out and you run your 60 session campaign with it. So I don't know. I I feel like I want to and I'm just a little afraid. I probably will try and we'll try it out. We'll see what happens. If we get burned and we don't make it, then we don't make it. But I am very I'm very hesitant to charge under 70 bucks for our book. I I don't know that you're wrong. Um, There's a game designer named John Wick. Nice. (laughs) Uh, Still has his dog. I'm trying to remember what what product he had put out. Was it Seventh C? Um, and when he released it, he was charging fifty dollars for the book, and and people were like, fifty dollars? That's a lot. And fifty dollars was not a lot, by the way. And he said, look, I worked on this for two years. This represents two years of my of my work, two years of my life. If fifty if if fifty dollars if my if two years of my work is not worth fifty dollars to you, don't buy my book. I'm not having this conversation. Yeah. And he was absolutely right. Um. And that, you know, he, he didn't get into arguments about, you know, publication costs or anything else. He said, you know, my work is worth this. And he's right. He's he, John Wick is a very good designer. He was right about the worth, the value of that book. Um, 
you have to be able as a as a creative to say my work is worth this if you are aggregating the work of multiple people you have to be able to say at minimum we've got to pay the, them this and so we've got to make this and therefore we have to charge this and you work from there right you you, you yeah. have to say look in order to make sure that these people all get paid exactly what they're worth we've got to charge $68 on average for this book so maybe you've got some lower tiers that are you know that don't have the full material but the, the, the for the full book yeah that's $70 um now I, I it's not for me to do your math and I'm not I'm not suggesting to any listeners either that I'm <laughs> I'm the expert yeah. on on their particular math what I am an advocate for is making sure that creatives stand their ground when they say my time my effort my creativity my expertise are worth this amount and i deserve to be paid properly for my work um and walking away if they can't get that and yeah i understand it's very difficult when you're dealing with a kickstarter to say look we did the preliminary work but we just didn't fund i don't think you're in danger of not funding but you know but there will be more copies right you know you may if you if you underprice you're going to sell more copies than you're expecting yeah. um and your print costs are going to be higher not per yeah. book but you know total yeah um but to to you the last thing you want is to turn around to your creatives and say you know yeah we're we're basically giving the book away because yeah. i think your i think your work worth work is worth it but the audience doesn't yeah. um then why are you doing the book what's the, I'm you all, know, cause yeah. you're not doing it to give your money away yeah 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 yeah, I definitely um, moving into this space and like thinking about it and like being a freelancer when I was first starting and like writing and thinking to myself, what do I want to do? And I was like, and this whole project started with me emailing a wish list of people who I would like to work with and they all happen to respond. So I was like, oh, fuck. So <laughs> I was like, OK, now I'm working with uh, 10 to 15 people. Now I'm working with 20 people. OK, they all. OK, great. Uh, so they're all on the team. <laughs> um, and then making it work like in hindsight, of course, you know, I'm, I'm making ends meet or uh, doing what I can. But and I went through this pricing thing with pro GMing. And I remember when I started in uh, January, exactly one year ago on start playing games in 2022. And I was priced at like $25, $28 generally for like a game per seat. And then at the time, I was one of the more expensive GMs. And I upped my prices gradually because I'm like, well, I got to live on this. And I have uh, three fucking kids. And I have, you know what I mean? Like I've got bills to fucking pay. So, and I live on the West Coast. And that's just operating right, it's not, costs. It's not just you in a shack with a light bulb, right? There's, <laughs> exactly. There's other expenses involved. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like for me to live is more expensive than for someone else to live and for me to support my family and everything like that. So um, me even climbing that price range, because once I scaled in uh, labor uh, hours, once I scaled in games up to like 10 to, I, at one point I was at like 15 games and I was like, I can't fucking do this anymore. I just have to raise my prices. And now I'm at like $40 a seat and $45 a seat, depending on the game. And my community now has grown so much that people understand this is what Friday costs to play with because this yep. is the operating cost. And I take all of that extra money that I get and I throw it into the vineyard. Um, so eventually that'll go into maybe my savings account or I'll run less games and I'll be happier. But <laughs> you well, know. look, you may be at a point now that it's been a year where, you know, your price can safely go up again. Now that may not be the case. I don't know. I'm not in the, I'm not in the pro GM space at all. And so I don't, I, I don't know what, um what the market will bear. Um And even then, you know, there's this, 
you know, there's a toggle. Okay, if I if I go up by this many dollars, but I lose this game, but right. I'm still making the same number of dollars at the end, you know, is that worth it to you? Um, you know, the, those are always difficult. You know, it's it, the math. The math has to bear out. Yeah. Um, but it's you know, there's always going to be some segment of the of the population for whom it's too much. Yeah. And there's always going to be some segment for whom there is no price too high. It's the people in the middle where, okay, you've now passed their threshold. But I think, you know, you've certainly got enough hours under your belt to be able to say, look, you know, it's time for me to raise my prices again. Um, You know, you may want, I don't know if there's games you've got to wrap or whatever. And, you know, or, you know, I wouldn't raise a price in the middle of a game. But, you know, as one game wraps and you go to the next one, okay, that same slot, that's not a $30 slot anymore. That's a $45 slot now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, that those are decisions you'll make for yourself. But, yeah, my hope is that the economics work to the point where you're not having these concerns anymore. It's rough yeah. to have um, to have to worry about this stuff, especially when you know that there are other people you want to pay with that money. You know, it's not it, – these aren't faceless bills, right? These are yeah. humans that you have relationships with and you want yeah. to maintain those relationships. Yeah, it's like being a um, it's like being a bartender or a gym owner and like having relationships with the clients who pay to be there, but like you can be friends with them. Mm-hmm. That's what that's very similar in relationship. And I actually did this um, in October or November. I told them like uh, all my players, like I'm raising my prices to forty and forty five dollars from I think at the time it was like thirty and thirty three for my seats. Depending on what game you were, if you're homebrew, I charge a little bit more, and because it's just more labor and it's more difficult. So, um, and I had like people who had just joined my community and they're like, I can't go up, but I didn't lose anybody who had been with me a while. So the people who were in it for the long haul, who had played with me, you know, six to 12 months or whatever, and they got past that initial, like, we call it like the, the, uh, the rotation, the, the seat rotation, because you lose most people at session zero, session one, session four, session eight and session 20. So seasonal changes after two months with someone, if they become a ha- habitual player and like you play with them a month, they have a habit now. And then if their schedule changes within two months, sometimes that happens. And then after that, it's like every four or five months, then people seasonally change their schedule and then something doesn't work anymore. And that's generally how it goes with players. But like when if I give somebody the choice who doesn't know the difference between me and somebody else, paying an extra 20 to $30 can be a big deal. Now, this isn't what I tell pro GMs when I'm trying to get them to run a business because I'm like, you need to sacrifice those players in order to make a living. And I tell them, you cannot care. Um, I know it hurts, but you have to force yourself to raise your prices to run good games because if you never raise your prices, then you will fill your games. You will just run more games at the same price and you'll burn yourself out. You'll stop being able to earn a living and it's just not good for you. So I I use this... um this analogy when when people talk to me about this kind of stuff it's like um there is always a cost for every every seat that you add right you have to think of it like you're baking cookies do i want to bake another tray of cookies or do i just want to charge a dollar more for the cookies that i'm already selling out of every week if you're charging just a little bit more and you still sell out then you were justified in raising your prices yeah if you raise your price if and you've still got cookies you know did did you make the same as you made last week did you make more did you make less Um, and even then there might be an adjustment period because if all your other games are full and you've just raised your prices, you know, it may take a couple of weeks to refill, but you might refill. Yep. Um, but, um, 
you know, killing yourself to bake more cookies isn't the answer. You you understand pro GMing really well. You should do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the GMing part. I'm not. I am not a as for as long as I've been in the space, for as many games as I played, for as many games as I run. I am. I have never been a confident DM or GM at all. Really? Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm not. Um, I'm not confident with voices. I'm not confident with uh with doing things on the fly. If I were more confident, sure. But um, yeah. it I it would take me. I would I would have to run some pretty solid games like offline for friends or right. rather, or, you know, like not publicly for friends first right. in order to build the confidence to, to be able to do that. Yeah. I, I recommend most people um, run 100 to 200 games with the intention of going pro before they go pro, because like that builds your mindset towards like, what do I need to do to get good enough to be confident enough and whatever you need to do, to gain that confidence is what you got to do to make it because that's often what separates people. And unfortunately, like a lot of GMs and like contributors, uh, writers, everybody in the industry um, from third edition and prior, they were told that as a DM, you should be giving everything for free. You all the work and labor that you do, you should be thankful that you even have players. And like, that's the kind of mentality that I see a lot in the new pro DMs is like, why would anybody pay for my services? And the only reason I'm here is because like, I've been told repeatedly that I should be a pro. So if anyone listening to this is not sure <laughs> whether that whether they should charge or not, um, yes, you should. And here's why. Um, in tabletop role-playing games, running the game as a DM, GM, storyteller, whatever you're going to call it, you know, depending on the game, is a skill. Not everybody develops that skill. Not everybody is comfortable using that skill. Um, being able to provide that skill reliably to an audience is a desired skill. There are not nearly enough GMs in the market, and there never will be. Um, also, if you're doing it for strangers, you're not their friend. Not you can become friends, but you know you're you're providing a service. You know they want to play that they want to play that game. And um, just as if I buy a PlayStation Five game, I can't play it without the PlayStation. If I buy a Dungeons and Dragons adventure, I need a DM to run that adventure for me. You know, having the having the adventure is not enough. I need someone with the skills and the mindset and the talents and the time bring that world to life for me in order for me to play the game. And if I can't find that among my friends, um, why shouldn't I be able to find someone online who's willing to provide that service and pay them to do it? What you're willing to pay for that? Uh, that's not for me to say. What, you're, what someone's willing to charge for it? That's not for me to say. That's a business transaction that's between the group. But those talents are important. Um, you know, uh, it's just like, oh, uh, my, my shoulders hurt. I need a massage. Your friend can give you a shoulder massage. They may not be any good at it, but you can you can get that shoulder massage for free. Or you can go to Massage Envy or any spa or whatever and get a massage from a professional and pay for their talents. Talented people deserve to be paid for their skill, both both for their time and for the time that they've spent developing that that skill. And if you're if you believe that they shouldn't be, then don't pay them. You know, that's nobody's forcing you. Um, but otherwise, you know, don't don't feel bad about paying for it. Thank you so much for coming on. This has oh, been thank wonderful. You for me. Thank you for having me. I'm, I really appreciate um, you listening, <laughs> not disconnecting. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to I'm happy to talk games at any point, but especially freelancing stuff. I think um, there's a whole lot of people that are always kind of on the fence about whether to jump in or not. And whatever I can do to help them make an informed decision about that, I'm happy to 
I'm happy to help with. Absolutely. And uh, when you you and I were talking about you developing this uh, college level course uh, for freelancing, whenever you get to a point where you're comfortable talking about that on the podcast, I would love to have you back um, and to discuss that. Oh, absolutely. Um, I may I, I may offer it to a small group of people who are already in the space, including you, to see whether it's something that um, uh, bears wider distribution. Yeah, I'm I'm already signed up. What, when do I show up to this I'll be in class? <laughs> oh, no, I'll be no, in the front no, row. No, the, the syllabus isn't done yet. I'm still working. On okay, that. okay. Um, well, thank you so much for coming. Thank you, everyone, uh, for listening. And I'm gonna hit the stop button now. Thanks so much for listening to the Dollars and Dragons podcast. If you'd like to support me and, more importantly, my editor who does all of the heavy lifting here, then you can subscribe to Patreon.com/slash/isfriday, and that is gonna go straight to my editor. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Bye.